Chapter Three of Black Ivory by R. M. Ballantyne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three relates the further adventures of Harold and Disco, and lifts the curtain a little higher in regard to the slave trade. So Captain Romer and his lieutenants went to dine with the worthy Governor Signor Francisco Alfonso Toledo Bignoso Litori, while Yusuf returned to the creek to carry out his deep-laid plans. In regard to the dinner let it suffice to observe that it was good, and that the Governor was urbane, hospitable, communicative, and every way agreeable. It is probable that if he had been trained in another sphere and in different circumstances, he might have been a better man. As things stood he was unquestionably a pleasant one, and Captain Romer found it hard to believe that he was an underhand schemer. Nothing could exceed the open way in which Signor Litotti condemned the slave trade, praised the English for their zeal in attempting to suppress it, explained that the King of Portugal and the Sultan of Zanzibar were equally anxious for its total extinction, and assured his guests that he would do everything that lay in his power to further their efforts to capture the guilty kidnappers and to free the poor slaves. "'But, my dear sir,' said he at the conclusion of an emphatic declaration of sympathy, "'the thing is exceedingly difficult. You are aware that Arab traders swarm upon the coast, that they are reckless men who possess boats and money in abundance, that the trade is very profitable.' and that, being to some extent real traders in ivory, palm oil, indigo, and other kinds of native produce, these men have many ruses and methods, what you English call dodges, whereby they can deceive even the most sharp-sighted and energetic. The Arabs are smart smugglers of negroes, very much as your people who live in the Scottish land are smart smugglers of the dew of the mountain, what your great poet Burns speaks much of. I forgot its name." it is not easy to put them down. After dinner Signor Litotti led the officers into his garden and showed them his fruit-trees and offices, also his domestic slaves who looked healthy, well cared for, and really in some degree happy. He did not, however, tell his guests that, being naturally a humane man, his slaves were better treated than any other slaves in the town. He did not remind them that, being slaves, they were his property his goods and chattels, and that he possessed the right and the power to flay them alive if so disposed. He did not explain that many in town were so disposed, that cruelty grows and feeds upon itself, that there were ladies and gentlemen there who flogged their slaves, men, women, and children, nearly to the death, that one gentleman of an irascible disposition, when irritated by some slight oversight on the part of the unfortunate boy who acted as his valet, could find no relief to his feelings until he had welded him first into a condition of unutterable terror and then into a state of insensibility. Neither did he inform them that a certain lady in the town, who seemed at most times to be possessed of a reasonably quiet spirit, was roused once to such a degree by a female slave that she caused her to be forcibly held, thrust a boiling hot egg into her mouth, skewered her lips together with a sail-needle, and then striking her cheeks burst the egg and let the scalding contents run down her throat. Note. See Council MacLeod's Travels, Volume 2, page 32. No, nothing of all this did the amiable Governor Litotti so much as hint at. 
he would not for the world have shocked the sensibilities of his guests by the recital of such cruelties. To say truth, the worthy man himself did not like to speak or think of them. In this respect he resembled a certain class among ourselves, who, rather than submit to a little probing of their feelings for a few minutes, would prefer to miss the chance of making an intelligently indignant protest against slavery, and would allow the bodies and souls of their fellow-men to continue writhing in agony through all time. It was much more gratifying to the feelings of Signor Latodi to convey his guests to the drawing-room, and there gratify their palates with excellent coffee, while the graceful and now clothed Azinte brought a Spanish guitar to the Signorina Margarita, whose sweet voice soon charmed away all thoughts of the cruel side of slavery. But duty ere long stepped in to call the guests to other scenes. "'What a sweet girl the Signorina is,' remarked Captain Romer, while on his way to the beach. "'Ay, and what a pretty girl Azinte is, black though she be,' observed Lieutenant Small. "'Call her not black. She is brown, a brunette,' said the captain." I wonder how we should feel, said Lindsay, if the tables were turned, and our women and children, with our stoutest young men, were forcibly taken from us by thousands every year, and imported into Africa to grind the corn and hoe the fields of the black man. Poor Azinte! Do you know anything of her history? inquired Mr. Small. A little. I had some conversation in French with the Signorita before we left. Yes, I observed that, interrupted the captain, with a quiet smile. And, continued Lindsay, she told me that she had discovered, through an interpreter, that the poor girl is married, and that her home is far away in the interior. She was caught with many others while out working in the fields one day several months ago, by a party of slave traders under an Arab named Yusuf, and carried off. Her husband was absent at the time, her infant boy was with its grandmother in their village, and she thinks may have escaped into the woods but she has not seen any of them again since the day of her capture. It is a sad case, said the captain, and yet bad though it be, it might be far worse, for Azinte's master and mistress are very kind, which is more than can be said of most slave owners in this region. In a few minutes the captain's gig was alongside the firefly, and soon afterwards that vessel quietly put to sea. Of course it was impossible that she should depart unobserved, but her commander took the precaution to run due south at first, exactly opposite to the direction of his true course, intending to make a wide sweep out to sea, and thus get unobserved to the northward of the place where the slaver's dhow was supposed to be lying, in time to intercept it. Yusuf, from a neighboring height, watched the maneuver, and thoroughly understood it. When the vessel had disappeared into the shades of night that brooded over the sea, he smiled calmly and in a placid frame of mind betook himself to his lair in the creek beside the mangrove trees. He found Harold Seadrift and Disco Lillehammer in the hut, somewhat impatient of his prolonged absence, and a dozen of his men looking rather suspiciously at the strangers. "'Is all ready, Musa?' he inquired of a powerful man, half Portuguese, half Negro in appearance, who met him outside the door of the hut. "'All ready,' replied the half-caste, in a gruff tone of voice, but what are you going to do with these English brutes? Take them with us, of course, replied Yusuf. For what end? For our own safety. Why don't you see, Musa, that if we had set them free, they might have discovered the town and given information to the cruiser about us, which would have been awkward. We might now indeed set them free, for the cruiser is gone, 
but I still have good reason for wishing to take them with me. I think that we have but one boat in this creek, and I should like to make use of them for the purpose of propagating that false idea. I have had the good luck while in the town to find an opportunity of giving one of the sailors of the cruiser a little information as to my movements, some of it true, some of it false, which will perhaps do us a service. The Arab smiled slightly as he said this. "'Do these men know our trade?' asked Musa. "'I think they suspect it,' answered Yusuf. "'And what if they be not willing to go with us?' demanded Musa. "'Can twelve men not manage two? asked the Arab. Dark though the night had become by that time, there was sufficient light to gleam on the teeth that Musa exposed on receiving this reply. "'Now, Musa, we must be prompt,' continued Yusuf. "'Let some of you get round behind the Englishmen and have the slave-chains handy.' Keep your eye on me while I talk with them. If they are refractory, a nod shall be the signal. Entering the hut, Yusuf informed Harold that it was now time to set sail. Good, we are ready, said Harold, rising. But tell me one thing before my comrade and I agree to go with you. Tell us honestly if you are engaged in the slave trade. A slight smile curled the Arab's thin lip as he replied. If I be a slave trader, I cannot speak honestly, so you English think, but I do tell you, yes, I am. Then I tell you honestly, said Harold, that I won't go with you. I'll have nothing to do with slavers. Them's my sentiments to a T, said Disco with emphasis, thumping his left palm as usual with his right fist by way of sheeting his remark home to use his own words. But you will both perish on this uninhabited coast, said Yusuf. So be it, replied Harold. I had rather run the risk of starving than travel in company with slave traders. Besides, I doubt the truth of what you say. There must be several villages not very far off, if my information in regard to the coast be not altogether wrong. Yusuf waited for no more. He nodded to Musa, who instantly threw a noose round Harold's arms and drew it tight. The same operation was performed for Disco by a stout fellow who stood behind him, and almost before they realized what had occurred they were seized by a number of men. It must not be supposed that two able-bodied Englishmen quietly submitted at once to this sort of treatment. On the contrary, a struggle ensued that shook the walls of the little hut so violently as almost to bring it down upon the heads of the combatants. The instant that Harold felt the rough clasp of Musa's arms he bent himself forward with such force as to fling that worthy completely over his head and lay him flat on the floor but two of the other slavers seized Harold's arms, a third grasped him round the waist, and a fourth rapidly secured the ropes that had been thrown around him. Disco's mode of action, although somewhat different, was quite as vigorous. On being grasped he uttered a deep roar of surprise and rage, and raising his foot struck out therewith at a man who advanced to seize him in front. The kick not only tumbled the man over a low bench and drove his head against the wall, but it caused the kicker himself to recoil on his foes behind with such force that they all fell on the floor together, when by their united weight the slavers managed to crush the unfortunate Disco, not indeed into submission, but into inaction. His tongue, however, not being tied, continued to pour forth somewhat powerful epithets until Harold very strongly advised him to cease. "'If you want to retain a whole skin,' he said, "'you had better keep a quiet tongue.' "'Perhaps you're right, sir,' said Disco, after a moment's consideration, "'but it ain't easy to shut up in the circumstances.' After they had thoroughly secured the Englishman, 
The traders led them down the bank of the creek to the spot where the dhow was moored. In the dark it appeared to Harold and his companion to be the same dhow, but this was not so. The boat by which they had crossed the creek had been removed up the water, and its place was now occupied by the dhow into which had been put the maimed and worn-out slaves of the band whose arrival we have described. The hold of the little vessel was very dark, nevertheless there was light enough to enable the Englishmen to guess that the rows of black objects just perceptible within it were slaves. If they had entertained any uncertainty on this point, the odor that saluted them as they passed to the stern would have quickly dispelled their doubts. It was evident from the manner of the slavers that they did not now fear discovery, because they talked loudly as they pushed off and rowed away. Soon they were out of the creek and the roar of breakers was heard. Much caution was displayed in guiding the dhow through these, for the channel was narrow and darkness rendered its position almost indiscernible. At last the sail was hoisted, the boat bent over to a smart breeze, and held away in a northeasterly direction. As the night wore on this breeze became lighter, and most of the crew being asleep, deep silence prevailed on board the slave dhow, save that, ever and anon, a pitiful wail, as of a sick child or a convulsive sob, issued from the hold. Harold and Disco sat beside each other in the stern, with an armed half-caste on each side, and Yusuf in front. Their thoughts were busy enough at first, but neither spoke to the other. As the night advanced both fell into an uneasy slumber. When Harold awoke the gray dawn was beginning to break in the east, and there was sufficient light to render objects dimly visible. At first he scarcely recollected where he was, but the pain caused by the ropes that bound him soon refreshed his memory. Casting his eyes quickly towards the hold, his heart sank within him at the sight he there beheld. Yusuf's black ivory was not of the best quality, but there was a good deal of it which rendered judicious packing necessary. So many of his gang had become worthless as an article of trade through suffering on the way down to the coast that the boat could scarce contain them all. They were packed sitting on their haunches in rows each with his knees close to his chin, and all jammed so tightly together that none could rise up or lie down. Men, women, and little children sat in this position with an expression of indescribable hopelessness and apathy on their faces. The infants, of which there were several, lay motionless on their mother's shrunken breasts. God help them, they were indeed utterly worthless as pieces of merchandise. The long journey in hard treatment had worn all of them to mere skin and bone, and many were suffering from bad sores caused by the slave-irons and the unmerciful application of the lash. No one knew better than Yusuf that this was his damaged stock, hopelessly damaged, and he meant to make the best use he could of it. The sun arose in all its splendor and revealed more clearly to the horrified Englishmen all the wretchedness of the hold, but for a considerable time they did not speak. The circumstances in which they found themselves seemed to have bereft them of the faculty of speech. The morning advanced, and Yusuf with his men took a frugal breakfast, but they did not offer any to Harold or Disco. As these unfortunates had, however, supped heartily, they did not mind that. So much could not have been said for the slaves. They had received their last meal of uncooked rice and water, a very insufficient one, about thirty-six hours before, and as they watched the traders at breakfast their glaring eyes told eloquently of their sufferings. 
Had these been Yoosoof's valuable stock, his undamaged goods, he would have given them a sufficiency of food to have kept them up to condition as long as he possessed them. But being what they were, a very little drop of water and a few grains of raw rice at noon was deemed sufficient to prevent absolute starvation. "'How can you have the heart,' said Harold at last, turning to Yoosoof, "'to treat these poor creatures so cruelly?' Yoosoof shrugged his shoulders. "'My fodder treat them so. I follow my fodder's footsteps. But have you no pity for them? Don't you think they have hearts and feelings like ourselves?' returned Harold earnestly. "'No,' replied the Arab coldly. "'They have no feelings, hard as the stone. They care not for mother or child or husband, only brutes, cattle.' Harold was so disgusted with this reply that he relapsed into silence. Towards the afternoon, when the dhow was running close inshore, a vessel hove in sight on the horizon. A few minutes sufficed to show that it was a steamer. It was, of course, observed and closely watched by the slave-dealers as well as by Harold Seadrift and Disco Lillehammer, who became sanguinely hopeful that it might turn out to be a British man-of-war. Had they known that Yusuf was equally anxious and hopeful on that point, they would have been much surprised. But the wily Arab pretended to be greatly alarmed, and when the Union Jack became clearly visible his excitement increased. He gave some hurried orders to his men, who laughed sarcastically as they obeyed them. "'Yusuf,' said Harold, with a slight feeling of exultation, "'your plans seem about to miscarry.' "'No, they not miscarry yet,' replied the Arab with a grim smile. "'Tell me, Yusuf,' resumed Harold, prompted by strong curiosity, "'why have you carried us off-bound in this fashion?' Another smile, more grim than the former, crossed the Arab's visage as he replied, "'Me carry you off, cause that sheep, pointing to the steamer, lie not two mile off, near the town of Governor Litodi, when I first met you. We not want you to let thems know about us, so I carry you off, and I bind you, cause you strong.' Ha! That's plain and responsible, returned Harold, scarce able to restrain a laugh at the man's cool impudence. But it would appear that someone else has carried the news, so you see you have been outwitted after all. Perhaps. We shall see, replied the Arab, with something approaching to a chuckle. Altering the course of the boat, Yusuf now ran her somewhat off the shore, as if with a view to get round a headland that lay to the northward. This evidently drew the attention of the steamer, which was none other than the Firefly, for she at once altered her course and ran inshore so as to intercept the dhow. Seeing this, Yusuf turned back and made for the land at a place where there was a long line of breakers close to the shore. To run amongst these seemed to be the equivalent to running on certain destruction. Nevertheless, the Arab held on with compressed lips and a frowning brow. Yusuf looked quite like a man who would rather throw away his life than gratify his enemy, and the Englishmen, who were fully alive to their danger, began to feel rather uneasy, which was a very pardonable sensation when it is remembered that their arms being fast bound rendered them utterly unable to help themselves in case of the boat capsizing. The firefly was by this time near enough to hold converse with the dhow through the medium of artillery. Soon a puff of white smoke burst from her bow, and a round-shot dropped a few yards astern of the boat. "'That's a broad hint, my lad, so you'd better give in,' said Lillehammer, scarce able to suppress a look of triumph. Yusuf paid not the slightest attention to the remark, but held on his course. 
"'Surely you don't intend to risk the lives of these poor creatures in such a surf,' said Harold anxiously. "'Weak and worn as they are, their doom is sealed if we capsize.' Still the Arab paid no attention, but continued to gaze steadily at the breakers. Harold, turning his eyes in the same direction, observed something like a narrow channel running through them. He was enough of a seaman to understand that only one who was skilled in such navigation could pass in safety. "'They're lower in the boat,' said Disco, whose attention was engrossed by the maneuvers of the firefly. Soon the boat left the side of the vessel, which was compelled to check her speed for fear of running on the reef. Another gun was fired as she came round, and the shot dropped right in front of the dhow, sending a column of water high into the air. Still Yusuf held on until close to the breakers when, to the surprise of the Englishman, he suddenly threw the boat's head into the wind. "'You can steer,' he said sternly to Disco. "'Come, take the helm and go to your ship, or, if you choose, go on to the breakers.' He laughed fiercely as he said this, and the next moment plunged into the sea, followed by his crew. Disco, speechless with amazement, rose up and sprang to the helm. Of course he could not use his bound hands, but one of his legs answered almost as well. He allowed the boat to come round until the sail filled on the other tack, and then, looking back, saw the heads of the Arabs as they swam through the channel and made for the shore. In a few minutes they gained it, and, after uttering a shout of defiance, ran up into the bushes and disappeared. Meanwhile the Firefly's boat made straight for the dhow, and was soon near enough to hail. "'Heave to!' cried an interpreter in Arabic. "'Speak your own mother tongue, and I'll answer ye,' replied Disco. "'Heave to, or I'll sink you!' shouted Mr. Small, who was in charge. "'I'm just a-going to do it, sir,' replied Disco, running the dhow into the wind until the sail shook. Another moment and the boat was alongside. "'Jump aboard and handle the sail, lads. I can't help ye no further,' said Disco. The invitation was unnecessary. The moment the two boats touched the blue jackets swarmed on board, cutlass in hand, and took possession. "'Why, what, where did you come from?' asked the lieutenant, looking in profound astonishment at Harold and his companion. "'We are Englishmen, as you see,' replied Harold, unable to restrain a smile. "'We have been wrecked and caught by the villains who have just escaped you.' "'I see. Well, no time for talking just now. Cut them loose, Jackson. Make fast the sheet. Now then.' In a few minutes the dhow ranged up alongside the firefly, and our heroes, with the poor slaves, were quickly transferred to the man-of-war's deck, where Harold told his tale to Captain Romer. As we have already stated, there were a number of slaves on board the firefly, which had been rescued from various Arab dhows. The gang now received on board made their numbers so great that it became absolutely necessary to run to the nearest port to discharge them. We have already remarked on the necessity that lies on our cruisers, when overladen with rescued slaves, to run to a distant port of discharge to land them, and on the readiness of the slave traders to take advantage of their opportunity, and run north with full cargoes with impunity when some of the cruisers are absent for it is not possible for a small fleet to guard upwards of a thousand miles of coast effectually, or even in any degree, usefully. If we possessed a port of discharge, a British station and settlement on the mainland of the east coast of Africa, this difficulty would not exist. As it is, although we place several men of war on a station, the evil will not be cured, for just in proportion as these are successful in making captures, 
will arise the necessity of their leaving the station for weeks at a time unguarded. Thus it fell on the occasion of which we write. The presence of the large slave trade on board the man-of-war was intolerable. Captain Romer was compelled to hurry off to the Seychelles Islands. He sailed with the monsoon, but had to steam back against it. During this period another vessel, similarly freighted, had to run to discharge at Aden. The seas were thus comparatively clear of cruisers. The Arabs seized their opportunity, and a stream of dhows and larger vessels swept out from the various creeks and ports all along the East African coast, filled to overflowing with slaves. Among these were the four large dhows of our friend Yusuf. Having, as we have seen, made a slight sacrifice of damaged and unsaleable goods and chattels, in order to clear the way, he proceeded north, touching at various ports where he filled up his living cargo, and finally got clear off, not with goods damaged beyond repair, but with thousands of the sons and daughters of Africa in their youthful prime. In the interior each man cost him about four yards of cotton cloth, worth a few pence, each woman three yards, and each child two yards, and of course in cases where he stole them they cost him nothing. On the coast these would sell at from eight pounds to twelve pounds each, and in Arabia at from twenty pounds to forty pounds. We mention this to show what strong inducement there was for Yusuf to run a good deal of risk in carrying on this profitable and accursed traffic. But you must not fancy, good reader, that what we have described is given as a specimen of the extent to which the slave trade on that coast is carried. It is but as a specimen of the manner thereof. It is certainly within the mark to say that at least thirty thousand natives are annually carried away as slaves from the east coast of Africa. Sir Bartle Ferre, in addressing a meeting of the chief native inhabitants of Bombay in April 1873, said, let me assure you, in conclusion, that what you have heard of the horrors of the slave trade is in no way exaggerated. We have seen so much of the horrors which we were going on that we can have no doubt that what you read in books, which are so often spoken of as containing exaggeration, is exaggerated in no respect. The evil is much greater than anything you can conceive. Among the poorer class of Africans, there is nothing like security from fathers and mothers being put to death in order that their children may be captured. And referring to the East Coast alone, he says that thirty thousand or more human beings are exported every year from Africa. Dr. Livingston tells us that, on the average, about one out of every five captured human beings reaches the coast alive. The other four perish or are murdered on the way so that the thirty thousand annually exported, as stated by Sir Bartle Ferre, represents a loss of a hundred and fifty thousand human beings annually from the East Coast alone, altogether irrespective of the enormous and constant flow of slaves to the north by way of the White Nile and Egypt. Yusuf's venture was therefore but a drop in the vast river of blood which is drained annually from poor Africa's veins, blood which flows at the present time as copiously and constantly as it ever did in the days of old, blood which cries aloud to God for vengeance, and for the flow of which we, as a nation, are far from blameless. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's Audiobooks
Com.